This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the construction settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and I'm your host for today's program. As you know, every Ringler Radio show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or the legaltalknetwork.com. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to be taking a look at the captive insurance marketplace, and we're going to be learning uh, quite a bit about this growing industry. We'll define captives, discuss what's new in the captive insurance marketplace, and take a look ahead at this growing industry. And the person that's going to help us do that is our special guest today, Dana Shepard, the Associate Commissioner of the District of Columbia Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking, better known as DISB, where he manages the Risk Finance Bureau. The Risk Finance Bureau is responsible for the regulation of captive insurance companies and risk retention groups in the district. Mr. Shepard joined the department in 1997 as senior attorney, participated in the drafting of uh, original regulations and insurance law back in the year 2000, and uh, he's also served as the department's director of policy and public affairs. Prior to joining the department, Mr. Shepard was a trial attorney in the D.C. office of the Attorney General. Well, with that as an introduction, welcome to the show, Dana. Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm glad we have you here, Dana. Dana, why don't you start by telling us what your role is at the department, uh, this DISB uh, department down there in, in the district, and uh, uh, what is it that you, that you do in your role of, uh, of regulating and organizing this, this, uh, this department? Certainly. We, we have, um, as many other captive jurisdictions have done, separated our insurance uh, regulation into two divisions. We have our um, traditional, what we call our traditional insurance division um, that regulates regular insurance companies, and then the Risk Finance Bureau is responsible for the regulation of all captive insurers that are licensed in the District of Columbia. And in that role, I am the supervisor of the Risk Finance Bureau, which basically has two two f- missions. One is to regulate the companies that we currently have licensed, which is basically a solvency-based regulation, which we can go into right. further if you want. And the other responsibility that I have is to oversee the formation uh, of new companies, marketing and promoting the district as a captive insurance domicile. Interesting. Well, we'll get into that a little bit later, but I think for our audience out there who are not quite as uh, familiar with the, the subject of captive insurance, uh, maybe we ought to define it a little bit. Uh, and what is a risk retention group? So why don't you tell us what, what in, your, in your view, is the, is the captive insurance marketplace? What is a captive insurer? And, a, and what are these risk retention groups? Okay. Well, a captive insurance company is an insurance company that insures its owners as opposed to a traditional company that sh- insures uh, anybody who pays a premium but not necessarily uh, is an owner of a company mm-hmm. of the company um, and a risk retention group um, is it, it really a, a risk retention group is a creation of federal law 
Um, it is a, a, an, a an insurance company made up of policyholders and members. Every 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 policyholder of the risk retention group is an owner, and every owner of the risk retention group must be a policyholder. In some jurisdictions that have captive laws, the the risk retention group is licensed as a captive. In other jurisdictions that do not have captive insurance laws, they will license a risk retention group as a traditional insurance company. So that varies from one state to another. And don't risk retention groups essentially uh, involve themselves with liability risk exposures as opposed to property or comp? That is absolutely correct. They are, by federal law, limited to um, liability coverage only, um, although there is some discussion about uh, expanding that to other lines. Okay. Well, when we talk about uh, the uh, captive marketplace, we always talk about the fact that it's growing. And, and I guess my question to you in a general sense is, what do you think is fueling the growth in captive marketplace? Why, why are captives becoming more and more popular? Well, I think um, there are a couple of reasons. I mean, most recently, um, up until the past year or so, there have been in many areas of the insurance market what we refer to as a hard market where prices are rising. In some, some areas, there's coverage that's no longer available. Um, and for that reason, companies have uh, looked to form their own insurance companies to provide the coverage that's not available in the insurance market. Um, a lot of people who form captives believe do so because they, they feel that they can save money. It's a, it's a very cost-effective way to provide some or all of their insurance needs. And so it is now thought that approximately in the, in the 45 to 50 percent of all what we call non-life insurance is purchased through captive insurance at this point, and and that that they may grow. I think we're in, in the current in the current market, we're seeing some softening in some lines, and so the new new formations have have been a little slower in the past year to eighteen months. But this is a normal cycle, and we would expect it would pick up again because because the traditional companies are softening their prices a little bit, and right, and, and the, people aren't feeling quite as. Uh, as pinched to be to have to go into their captive market. Exactly. When when there's what we call um, capacity in the marketplace, the re- re- insurers and reinsurers tend to lower their rates, um, and they will then uh, you know the, the fewer captives are formed during those times. If there's a uh, a, a hurricane or if there's a terrorism event, uh, and then the capacity were to be reduced, then we would expect some lines to uh, to harden, and then the capacity would dry up, and then we would see more captive formations. And so that that'll eventually return. Exactly. Well, what are the major lines of insurance uh, that m- captives are involved in writing? What, I, I know we talked about liability on the risk retention groups, but what are the other lines that captives are really involved with? Well, really, for the most part, they're involved in all commercial lines. Um, um, you have commercial auto, mm-hmm. you have workers' comp, you have property and captives, you have terrorism. Um, it really, there's directors and officers coverage. There's also all sorts of coverage can be written in captives. Some people are even starting to explore some of the, in the benefits in the healthcare area, and that is that is slowly catching on. But but certainly the, the more traditional commercial lines can all be insured through captives. Mm-hmm. Well, once these captives are formed, your job involves regulating them. One of the, one of your jobs. I know the other is the marketing, but the regulation is interesting. And I think you mentioned before that a lot of it's concerned with solvency issues. Uh, 
Tell, tell us about how you go about trying to make sure that these captives are, are solvent and stay solvent. Sure. Well, the primary responsibility of an insurance regulator is to make sure that the, the insurance company um, is, is available to pay claims when, when necessary. Mm-hmm. And even though captives are owned by the, the, the companies that, that form them and purchase insurance from them, there is... Uh, not as much regulation, but certainly there's some regulation. There's some, and some people have a misconception that captive regulators don't do any regulation, and that's, <laughs> that's certainly not correct. But what we what we do is there, there, there are a couple of areas where we concentrate. Most of my staff um, is made up of financial people, analysts, and examiners, and we we depending on the company for what we call regular captives or, or non-risk retention group captives. We have a requirement that they file uh, an unaudited financial statement every year, and that basically is an income statement, balance sheet, cash flows, and some exhibits on losses and reinsurance and investments and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's when that statement comes in uh, at the end of the calendar year or fiscal year, depending on the company, where the analysts assigned to the company will analyze the statement for various um, areas to make sure that there's sufficient assets to support the obligations, there's liquidity, um, there's all sorts of, of numerous ratios that we run on the companies to make sure that the company is performing in accordance to certain benchmarks that we have internally, as well as during the licensing process, the companies will provide us with financial projections for five years, and so we compare actual performance to the projections that they gave us when they came in to see that the company is, is on course, um, and, and if necessary, we will ask questions, and there may be some uh, changes and other things that we will require um, as, after we analyze these, these statements. Now, risk retention groups, um, um, they're slightly different animal for various reasons, but we look at those companies every quarter. So every quarter they will file uh, unaudited financial statements, mm-hmm. and we go through the same analysis process and communication with the companies um, there. In addition to unaudited financial statements, all companies have to file an actuarial opinion by that's prepared by an independent actuary, not an in-house one, that basically looks at the company's loss reserves and they will ex- express an opinion on whether they believe the loss reserves are adequate or not. And then that information is filed with the department and is also given to the uh, company's independent auditor who incorporates that into an annual audit of the company, which is also filed with the department. So um, this unaudited actuarial and audited financial statements we review every mm-hmm. year. And, and what's the outcome if, if you look at the someone's statements and you're not you don't you don't like you don't like what you're seeing uh what are some of the penalties that can be that can be placed on some of these captives? Can they can you put them out of business? Yeah, if it if it if it rises to that level, in almost in in, in almost every uh, financial statement, there's some questions about um, about how a particular item has been accounted for. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, you'll have um, various you know extreme deviations from one quarter to the next, or one one annual statement to the next annual statement. The surplus may drop, and so if, so if, if 
for example, if surplus drops more than 10%, um, we will ask questions about, you know, what's going on? Are you having problems? Is there, is there market conditions and management issues? What, what, what is happening to cause this number? Um, if, it, if, if, we, if you cross um, beneath a certain threshold, which we believe is sort of a critical stage, we would then ask the company to re- either revise its business plan, which may include uh, the additional putting in additional capital and surplus to to support the company. Um, we may ask the company to slow down and, and not write as much business going forward. Um, and we, we, in most cases, we will work together to resolve our differences, um, and and it's usually successful. And we don't have to go right. to get into an adversarial re- uh, relationship. However, if 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 we find that the company uh, is, we, we use the term operating in financially hazardous condition, which essentially means there's some either it's obvious or there's some question as to whether the company will be able to pay its policyholders. Then we can actually have we have the authority to take. take administrative action, or we can go into court, uh, to the Superior Court in the District of Columbia, mm-hmm. to actually take over the company and either rehabilitate it or liquidate it, close it down, and put it, well, put it away. I'll tell you one thing. It sounds like when you walk into the room, people sit up straight. That's for sure. Well, usually. <laughs> <no>. <laughs> but, but, it's, but it's usually we have a very good relationship with the, with the folks, and we don't, we don't normally have to get into that type I got of relationship. You. I got you. Well, there are several types of captives that can be formed uh, in uh, D.C., in the district, and you know there are quite a few of them. But let's, I just want to focus on maybe defining two or three of them. Sure. Uh, one of them is called a pure captive. Another is an association captive and an agency captive. Uh, is a pure captive what it sounds like, just, just r- ensuring the risk of the, of the owners, the parent, and the affiliated companies? Yeah, it's, 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 some people refer to it as a single-parent captive. It is usually a, a, a captive that's owned by a, a single member, and that, and that could be usually a, a corporation. So you would think uh, ExxonMobil or, mm-hmm. or Caterpillar, something will own its own insurance company, and it insures the parent and any subsidiaries within that, in that holding company uh, okay. group. Um, that's, that is a pure captive. Um, it, it, an association captive um, it, it is that that's sometimes referred to as a group captive. So you in that area you would think of certainly an, a risk retention group as one type of association captive. So you have a, a group of doctors will work together um, in, in in the context of an association captive to provide insurance uh, for their medical malpractice needs. So as opposed to having one policyholder that you would have in a pure, you have multiple policyholders in an association captive. Um, and then an agency captive is, is just what it says. It's owned by an agency, and usually the agency captive is a reinsurance captive as opposed to a direct writing captive. And in that situation, you, what you would typically have is a, a, a standard insurance company um, that issues policies to the public, um, or to 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 can be consumer policies can be commercial policies, and then the insurance agent will form an agency captive to take a percentage of the business on the back end in the, in, in the form of reinsurance. So that way, a lot, lot of lot of um, companies criticize agents because they want to share in profits that they in in, in terms of the good business that they bring to makes the it makes them more careful when they pick the business, though, right? Doesn't it? <laughs> right, but they don't often want to share in losses. So what they so what 
the agency captive does is the reinsurance uh, captive um, takes a position. So if the business is profitable, not only do they get commissions for generating the business, they also get underwriting profits. On the other hand, if the business is bad, then they have underwriting losses and the agents participate in that also. There you go. That's that's business in America. Right. Well, Let's talk about uh, the kind of coverage that captives uh, have been providing lately that's a little bit outside the mainstream. Uh, you mentioned before that sometimes captives are formed because it's really the coverage of last resort. Companies right. can't get coverages. What are some of the more esoteric coverages that captives have been able to deal with that the traditional marketplace hasn't? Well, the big one has been uh, terrorism. Mm-hmm. Um, that that uh, is available for uh, for for some companies um but certainly um it is it, when it is available depending on who the policyholder is it, it will cost an arm and a leg and so for example we licensed a company last year for New York New Jersey Port Authority and as you can imagine they have a lot of, of terrorism exposures sure. and so that was certainly a line that they were uh, very interested in uh, in doing um and that that one is um is is one that's that's very popular. Um, there have been um, in in Southern California. You may be aware that there uh, have some very very difficult laws in terms of construction defects and, yes. and the liabilities that are associated with that. And in the past several years, we've seen um, many many builders have formed captives to provide um, construction defect coverage because it just wasn't available. In the marketplace. That's interesting, and those are two two really good examples. And but of course, captives uh, not only are formed to provide that kind of coverage, but they're also there to, in many many instances, provide some economic advantages to the to the parties involved in the captives. Some economic and maybe some tax advantages as well. What what are some of the advantages on the economic and tax side that would wants to make somebody get involved in the captive markets? Well, in terms of the um the economic advantages, you know, many, many, many companies, particularly the, the big players in the marketplace, um, in terms of your policy form language and the coverage that you can get, it's, it's basically it's offered to you on a take-it-or-leave-it basis. When you form a captive, you can uh, certainly customize your insurance f- uh, forms to suit your particular needs. Um, in addition, another big area is investment income. As you as you well mm-hmm, aware, mm-hmm. when you pay your premium to your traditional carrier, it's gone, and if you're lucky, you don't have any losses and you won't have an increase. But during that time, between the time you pay your premium and the time that any losses are paid, the insurance company gets the benefit of your um, premiums through investment income. And so, not if they use not if they use my stockbroker, they won't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I understand. Right, but by forming a captive, you get to, to to retain your investment income during the period uh, prior to paying any claims, and so that's your money to keep if you are, especially if you run a successful program. Um, that's a big be- that's a big benefit. That really a, is. It's, yeah. it's a it's a major benefit. Um, and in one area that's that's often overlooked or sometimes overlooked is it can be a very good risk management tool f- um, for a company. When you sometimes companies when you pay premium you sort of pay it and you forget about it and maybe you complain about it. But that's that. But when you have a captive and the CFO or the treasurer then is responsible 
for the funds that are set aside, and, and if the funds are lost through through neglect or other um, inattention to detail and things like that, um, it can it can highlight uh, this issue for the for for management and the board. And so, by by retaining some of your losses, you tend to be more careful about loss prevention and, sure. and other things like that. Um, there's better control over claims. One of the things that doctors are uh, are frequently concerned about is they they're very worried about when. A, a case is settled because, as you know, that will follow them around forever. Right. And um, when you again, when you're dealing with traditional companies, they have their own motivations, and so they, they will, you know, they will make decisions on when to settle cases and when when to fight. Um, that may be or may not be consistent with what the doctors would like to do in terms of their own self-interest. Right. And so, by having your own captive, you're able to um, you're, you're able to to have greater control over your claims. Um, and settlement practices. And I guess the last area in the economic advantages would probably be um, the access to the reinsurance markets. If you if you're a company and you self-insure and set aside funds for for losses, um, that's all well and good. And but but unfortunately, reinsurers and the Lloyd's markets will not deal with you mm-hmm. um, if you're self-insuring. If you set up a captive to provide a layer of coverage, you can then back that up with uh, with reinsurance because reinsurers are are more comfortable dealing with a regulated entity as opposed to a non-regulated business. So that's those another very, very good advantage. So that certainly can be um, one of the advantages associated with captive formation. And in terms of 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 the Premium tax deductions. Uh, they really there. There is no advantage um, for the most part in terms of taxes. Um, if you're if you're talking about a, a traditional insurance purchase, if you mm-hmm. if you're buying from the commercial market, you can deduct those uh, premiums as you would any other business expense. Um, there is an advantage over self-insurance. The IRS takes the position if you set aside funds within the organization to to provide future losses, to cover future losses, you cannot deduct that until the losses actually occur. But if you set up an insurance, your own captive insurance company, when you pay the premium to your captive insurance company, the, the company can deduct that as a business expense. Mm-hmm. And then on the captive tax, uh, income tax, um, filing, it will take that money and establish reserves, and then it can deduct those reserves from its tax obligation. So you're really you're able to accelerate your your tax deduction. Um, but in terms of the company that's actually paying the premium, there's there's, there's very very little difference in terms of uh, the taxes that are the, the tax advantages. But now the IRS has recently, uh, I think, it was in late October, proposed to actually change the the tax treatment for single-parent captives that would eliminate most of the ta- current tax advantages associated with captives, which is a concern of the captive industry. And, um, mm-hmm. and so there's, there's still proposed regulations at this time, and so many of the jurisdictions onshore um, plan to, to, uh, to, to oppose those regulations because it will, it will reduce the number of new captives that are formed, and it could possibly lead to many of the single-parent captives having to, to go offshore. Interesting. And, well, you know, the lobbying will take place as, as we yeah. speak. Yeah. What about state guarantee fund assessments? Are they, uh, 
are, are captives exempt from those? Yes, um, all captive laws are exempt companies from the guarantee fund. So that's a, I mean, on the one hand, the captive doesn't have to pay into the guarantee fund, so that's certainly an advantage in terms of reducing your cost. But on the other hand, the, the policyholders does not you know, get get the benefit that of the get guarantee the benefit funds, of that. right? Gotcha. So. Interesting. Well, you're working in one of the larger jurisdictions that involve themselves with captives, and we've all heard of the Bermuda captives and the Cayman Islands, and Vermont, of course, is a big player, uh, and, and now D.C. is a big player. Uh, who are some of the other big players in the, in, in the captive marketplace, and, and just, how, you know, just how big is it going to become? Well, as you mentioned, Bermuda and Cayman are, are one and two uh, in the world mm-hmm. still. Um, and onshore, in addition to Vermont and D.C., uh, Hawaii is a very big player. They they, they do a lot of uh, captives for the Asian Pacific companies that are doing business in, in the uh, U.S. and as well as some Cal- California risk as well. And then uh, Nevada has, has has grown. D.C., Nevada, Arizona all started around the same time, and and they they are substantial players on the on the West Coast and throughout the United States. And then the last one I would mention that's also very very um, important player in the captive insurance market is uh, South Carolina. They uh, mm-hmm. have uh, over 200 captives now. Interesting. Well, it's a growing area, and I think what you laid out in terms of the advantages to being being involved in the captive. Uh, marketplace kind of speaks to why it's, it's growing as, as right, big as it right. is. Well, let's, let's take a little short break now so we can hear from the folks that make Ringler Radio a reality, and then we'll be right back with some more of this fascinating topic on Ringler Radio. This is Ringler Radio, internet radio from Ringler Associates, quite simply the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio. Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Placing more than $18 billion in structures over the past 30 years. And one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. Ringler Associates. The only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to RinglerAssociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network. Did you know you can download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to the Legal Talk Network. It's free. We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Did you know Ringler Radio is one of the top three rated shows in iTunes? Thanks to all of our listeners who download all the Ringler Radio shows. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Did you know that the Legal Talk Network shows are also available at CLE, including Ringler Radio? Visit law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, your host, and my guest today is Dana Shepard, Associate Commissioner at the Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking in Washington, D.C. 
And we've been talking uh, quite in a fascinating way, I think, about the captive insurance industry. So, uh, Dana, let's discuss for a second the the administration of these captives. Uh, I know a lot of times you use uh, outside entities. Are some of these entities now going offshore? How is that administrative uh, concept uh, working? Yes, Larry. Most captive insurance companies, with a few uh, exceptions, uh, do not have employees. Um, They typically will outsource all of their um, various service needs to service providers. And the the main ones, of course, are the captive manager who is responsible for keeping the books and the financial books and records of the company. They will will outsource their legal uh, matters. They will use a third-party administrator to handle claims. Um, and the and the captive manager will will coordinate or quarterback all of these various activities. Now, most of for for U.S. captives, most of this takes place um, in in the U.S. in one jurisdiction or another. In Vermont, many in many cases in Vermont, for example, all of the, the investment advisors, the captive manager, mm-hmm. the legal folks will all be centered in in Vermont. Uh, in D.C., we're a little bit more flexible, um, and we allow these various professionals to be located throughout the United States, and they, that typically works very well. Um, the same type of services are provided to offshore jurisdictions, um, but the U.S. captives typically do not use offshore service providers because the offshore service providers are not U.S. taxpayers and they are prohibited from, from operating in the U.S. without becoming subject to U.S. taxes. So, so but for example, Marsh is a very big uh, captive manager in addition to other things they do. They have Marsh's captive management offices within the U.S. that services their U.S. clients, and then they have a separate Marsh that outside of the U.S. that services their U.K. and, and, and their Caribbean business. So in the two, in the two offices tend, tend not to work uh, on, uh, on, on transactions in other jurisdictions. Interesting. Well, that makes some sense. Well, you know, in traditional insurance companies, uh, they are restricted – in terms of what, how they can invest their premiums. And I guess my question is, what type of investments are captives allowed to engage in? Uh, do they have those same kind of restriction? Well, um, in some jurisdictions they do, in some jurisdictions they don't. Um, one of the things that we did in 2004 to try and uh, give ourselves an advantage um, uh, compared to some of our colleagues in other states is we went back and looked at several areas of our law. One area we did look at, um, we, we found in the investment area, we had done what other jurisdictions in the U.S. have done, and that is to basically copy the traditional insurance um, investment requirements and, and brought those over into the captive side. And as you mentioned, they are somewhat restrictive in terms of what they can do. So what we did was we opened it up um, very broadly. And what, we, what our law in D.C. says is that you can invest in any type of um, investment, um, whether it's equity, it can be debt instruments, it can be even real estate. Um, you have to let us know uh, what you're investing in, why you want to invest in it. And then if we approve it, um, you can invest in it. So we don't have the same limitations that some other jurisdictions have. Uh, now, of course, when we look at that, we will look at the lines of business that uh, that, that are being written, uh, whether it's long tail, whether it's short tail, or somewhere in the middle. We'll look at the whether how much you have, how much you need, um, and we will make our decisions based on the, mm-hmm. the, the business plan of the company. 
Well, and obviously with the volatility of some of these investments, such as mortgages and real estate today, I mean, it's you've got to keep your eye on all of this, I'm, I'm sure, day to day. Yes, that's correct. Um, but but we find that many of our our companies tend to be prudent, and they they they're not investing in in exotic instruments and uh, and things like that because they understand it's, it's their money. They don't want to lose it. They want it to be there to pay claims. Um, we do have when we have one we have a physicians group that um, that that what they decided to do is to invest in a in a, in a real estate office building that they operate out of, mm-hmm. and that is a substantial part of. Of the assets that they carry on their books, but as we looked at that, we you know we, we we evaluated it and we said you know you have to have some financial ability to pay claims in the ordinary course. You can't have 100 percent of yeah, your assets. Yeah, more liquidity. You need more right, liquidity. right. So so we so we, so we certainly wouldn't permit a a, a company to hold 100 percent of its assets in real estate. But in this case, I, I suspect it was probably uh, in the 60 70 percent range. But but they had enough assets, other assets to to handle their claims. So. We were, we were, we were, our law, our law was flexible enough to permit that. Whereas, if they had been in another jurisdiction, that wouldn't have been unavailable to them. Interesting. Well, let's talk briefly about how someone would go about setting up a captive. If a corporation, let's say, wanted to do that, let's say we're talking about uh, uh, a private captive, what what goes into that? A feasibility study? How does that all come together for you? Well, typically, um, the, the parties who, who tend to be more sophisticated will start with an actuary mm-hmm. um, to do an analysis of their losses over over usually at least a five-year period, if, if not longer, um, to determine whether or not a, a captive is right for them. Mm-hmm. Um, when, they, when, they, when they have an idea that it, it does make sense and they're willing to invest the time and effort to do it, they sometimes come in um, – a company, a risk manager, or somebody in the treasurer's office will come directly to us. Uh, uh, but but sometimes they will they will they will hire a captive manager because again that that entity is the quarterback. And if if either way, if they come directly to us or they hire a captive manager or an actuary, the first step from our process is to come in and have what we call an informal sit-down where we meet with the uh, officials and the, and the key service providers to discuss the, the, the lines of business, the amount of capital they intend to start with, um, and we ask them to give us a, a rough idea of where they where they think they'll be a few years out. And if we believe that the, the captive makes sense and the people are, are, are proper uh, persons, entities to have a captive, we will then encourage them to um, to to have to, to to come back and file an application with us, and when that process that's sort of phase two, when the application comes in, it is then a a, a very large document that has the actuarial feasibility study. It'll have mm-hmm. the business plan, financial projections. It'll have underwriting and uh, third-party administration agreements, captain managers agreements, articles of incorporation. Bylaws, uh, the whole, the whole, the whole uh, nine yards you you would expect. E- ex- exactly, and you mentioned uh, third-party administration agreements. And since we're uh, Ringler Associates, you know we can't end this without talking about claims. W- what is your uh, what is your uh, uh, history on all this in terms of how these captives are handling claim handling? Is it th- typically through third-party administrators that that happens, and it's. Uh, yeah, and it's like like most traditional companies, claims are come in and they're settled, and a lot of them are using structured settlements. 
Yes, that is that is the way it's handled. In, in, every, in all of our captives, they use third-party administrators. None of our captives will will handle claims in-house. Mm-hmm. And and some of those some of those will involve structured settlements, as, as in the same way that traditional companies will use them. Well, that's interesting. And I know a lot of us in our business, in the structured business, uh, are now approaching the the captive marketplace and those third-party administrators uh, to help service them as well in terms of providing structured settlements for the claimants that they have. Well, listen, that's going to do it for this edition of Ringler Radio, and I think it's an extremely interesting topic today, and I know a lot of the audience are going to find it that way. And I'd like to thank uh, you, Dana Shepard, Associate Commissioner in the District of Columbia Department of Insurance, Securities, and Banking. It's DISB, and I'm not going to call it DISB. Uh, <laughs> thanks for joining us today, Dana. And if someone wanted to reach you or your office, what's the best way to do that? If they want to reach me, they can call me on 202-727-5074. Or you can visit our website at www.disb.dc.gov. Great. And again, if you want to reach any Ringler Associate, you know, ringlerassociates.com. We're all on there, and we even have our pictures. Some of them are better than others. But anyway, thanks again for listening. Dana, again, thank you very much for a very enlightening conversation. Now, all of you out there, go out and have a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates' experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, Mass Mutual, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock and Prudential.